Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, with a new episode of Global Caveat. On today's episode, we'll talk about identity, medical school, politics, ethics, and so much more. But first, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. Global Caveat is a listener-supported podcast, which means we appreciate any amount or form of support you can give us. We do have a Patreon page on our website, and just for $1, 3 or $5 a month, you can become a patron. We have cute names for them too, like if you donate $1 a month, you're an outbreak. If you donate $3 a month, you're an epidemic. And you can even suggest future guests for our show. If you like what we do and you love our guests, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share the knowledge. And speaking of knowledge, let's dive into today's episode where we get a little bit philosophical with Daniel Mason Gonzalez, a third-year medical student with a background in international relations. Hey Daniel, um, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us where people can reach you, and tell us anything that you want us to know. First of all, I wanted to thank you both, Susanna and Diana, for welcoming me on the show. I've been listening and have been a fan for a little while. So my name is Daniel Mason Gonzalez. I'm currently a third year student at Harvard Medical School. Uh, Susanna and I met back in college, and so was was grateful for the invite onto your show. Um, and a little bit about me, I guess. So I'm originally from East LA. My mom is a first generation Mexican immigrant, so I spent kind of like the first half of my childhood there, and then moved to Denver. Grew up with like a single mom and and three sisters who I love and hate at the same time. Um, and I think that background for me is like a really big part of my identity and who I am and how I view the world and has really, I think, influenced my trajectory. From there, um, I went to the University of Denver, majored in international studies with a concentration in health and development, right? Yeah, Susanna and I both did that and took a couple years off, did some research in developmental psychology and neuroscience, and then now I'm here. And so definitely happy to kind of bring the medical student perspective to global health uh, to the show. Cool. And am I allowed to ask you, because I knew you for all of college as Daniel Mason, but you added the Gonzalez. So um, yeah, totally. Welcome the question. It's, It's kind of a long, I guess not that complicated story, but essentially when I was born, my family was kind of struggling a bit, I guess just financially. And uh, my mom had a close uh, family friend, the Mason family, and they had actually agreed to adopt me because my mom felt that perhaps I'd have a a better life with kind of a bit more stability. And things ended up working out differently to where I stayed with my mom. But like paperwork was filled out and it was just kind of like complicated. And so I kept I kept that name for quite some time. And changing your name is actually a really hard process. If it's the main lesson I've learned from all of this. Um, so, so 26 years <laughs> later, I've gotten my like biological family name back. And I think by the time I found out about all of this, when I was kind of a, a teenager at that time, I wondered, you know, Mason is just such a big part of my identity. Everybody knows me by this. Should I change it? Would it confuse people? Do I have to create a whole new MySpace at that time? You know, <laughs> um, so I kind of just kept pushing it back. But finally, I think through after a lot of like growth and reflection on how important my identity is and, and my Latinidad. Um, I just felt that it was important for me to have that name for myself, but also all the effects that come with it and my patients being able to identify with, with my last name and, and, and my community and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. 
Yeah, I. That's funny because Diana and I not long ago we talked about having a name that sounds white and how that really impacts.、Um, you know, we don't we don't know for sure, right? We can't like have a measurable thing of how how far that goes, but we know it has power for sure. Oh, totally. I mean, I'm sure you both have heard of the Freakonomics book and how they looked at a study with Black African American sounding names compared to kind of just. Whatever you would consider typical names in the U.S., and and found that they were like so much more likely to get rejected from job offers. And I, I have thought about that. Daniel Mason's a pretty white-sounding name, and I, 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 I think the way I view it is that I don't have any doubt at all that it has afforded me a certain level of privilege on my path to getting here. And it's funny how it's like、um, it goes both ways because for me, something I wrote about in my personal statement is that every time I kind of see my last name. It's like a reminder of where I come from and the circumstances under which I was given that name, and so it's like at the same time affords me a level of privilege, but also reminds me of the like relatively underprivileged background that I have. It's like quite the like catch twenty two. Yeah, you're kind of carrying both worlds. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Of course. I was curious about it, so. I mean, I think、mm. I think stories are so powerful, right? I think、yeah. I mean there might be people out there listening too that carry their own struggles and、um, deep and personal stories, and sometimes、uh, we choose not to share them as openly because it reveals a certain side of us. At least for me, that that background, and I don't like to consider myself like a victim by, by any means. I think I had an awesome childhood, and sure, we had certain struggles, but、um, for me. It's always been important to share that story because there are other people out there who have had similar experiences, and and for me, and I think for others, it can be a source of of strength and resilience.、Um, so you said you wanted to kind of talk about your journey to getting to med school and how that was for you, and I'm sure it has a lot to do with your identity as well. Totally.、Um, where to start?、Um, <laughs> I mean, I didn't have like Doc、uh, Doc Stuffins or what's what's that show called? Doc McStuffins. Doc McStuffins. Yeah, there's like a there's like a kids show with a little doctor. Didn't have anything like that growing up, so it's, it's not where it started. But for me, in high school, I took kind of like an aptitude test, and I did fairly well in school. I had an awesome older sister who would kind of like tutor me and teach me things, and so I really give her a lot of credit. And I took this like aptitude test and put in my like personal. Characteristics, or just answered a bunch of questions, and it spit out these like careers that it might see me going into, and one of them was doctor, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool. So that was maybe like an early inkling of thinking about it, which I mean is it's pretty important. I mean, if if you go your entire your entire childhood without hearing someone or something say that you have the means or you could become a doctor,、mm-hmm. uh, so that was that was cool. Did some volunteering at a hospital, and then I was involved in this club at school called the World Affairs Challenge in Denver. And this is this this is this really cool thing where、um, we would like put a team together in our high school and plan at the end of the year to go compete with other schools. And the components were like a current events test. We would put on a, a skit, some like little kind of acting the- theatrics type deal. And the goal of all of this was just to learn about international events and to become more aware of of what's going on around the world. And just through this experience, I learned a lot about you know ongoing conflicts and kind of the state of the world. Um, this was like 2006 through 2010, so you know ongoing conflicts in Sub-Saharan Africa and and famine and and just 
crazy things all over the place. And I think that was when I first started thinking about how we might be pretty privileged here in the U.S. with what we have. And so this kind of led to me thinking international studies might be a good major when I when I got to college. And I was already kind of thinking about medicine at that point and did a little bit of traveling uh, to like Central America with a, an organization called Global Brigades. And that was such an interesting time for me because coming from like, you know, an underserved community in East L.A., um, I did think of myself as like underprivileged in the U.S. And then I saw extreme poverty for the first time. And it was jarring because I realized how relatively privileged on a global scale I was. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced anything like that. Yeah, I did when I went to Uganda. Yeah, I guess I I, I think you worded it really nicely because I think people sometimes think of privilege as this binary too, where it's like you either have it or you don't. And it's like, no, there's spectrums. And depending on what you're really talking about, there's we have privilege in some areas and then we're underprivileged in other areas. Exactly. And it's all relative to the context we're talking about. And also just to add to that, I mean, there's also definitely areas where we assume that we have privilege relative to other countries simply because of like our country's GDP or like the resources we have access to. And like, there's definitely like tons of happy people that don't have like plasma screen TVs and like cars and stuff like that. (laughs) So not to like to create that dynamic, but more so in examples of like extreme poverty to the level of of not having access to to steady sources of food or clean water um, or basic health um, is really what I think of, which um, many people in the global health community think of as as basic human rights and so more so that dynamic because i know we also don't want to fall into the trap of thinking ourselves as as superior to like quote-unquote developed or third world countries which is problematic in itself and i know you guys kind of discussed that in a previous episode (laughs) there's so many problems no (laughs) so when did you decide for sure you wanted to apply to med school Ooh, that's a great question I was listening to your guys' podcast earlier today, actually, and I remember you talked about organic chemistry and how tough of a class that was. I, I sympathized with you. Thankfully, I made it through organic chemistry, though that was a trying time for me, too. And, and kind of throughout that process of taking those really tough pre-med classes, it pushes you to the extent of, of thinking, like, is this really something I want to do? Because I'm kind of signing up for like, you know, quite a number of years more of this, you know, all these exams we have to take. And really what it took for me was to take a step back and think about like big picture what I wanted in terms of like values and goals for my career. And what it came down to was like trying to find something that combined important things to me, like developing personal relationships. You like so kindly dubbed me the a, a networker. Um, and, and I really do love kind of personal relationships with people, you know, medicine, as a career where you're like a lifelong learner and kind of continually challenged challenged intellectually. But also a part of it too was me thinking about, you know, having had this background of, of learning about global issues from the World Affairs Challenge and then in our international studies major and just really learning some like messed up stuff about how, how much inequality and injustice there is in the world. I just thought to myself, like, you know, how can I put myself in the best position to incite change? And I think a reality that I recognized was that physicians are like held in a high regard and they're and they're well compensated. And I thought to myself that perhaps my contribution to addressing injustice could be to leverage that hmm. my my resources um, that would come of that career uh, to leverage that towards inciting change and addressing inequity and injustice. Hmm. 
So kind of all those factors together really, I think, led me down the path of medicine. I also thought about public health. I thought about international development. And I think, you know, I thought about doing Peace Corps or just going to work with an NGO in uh, an underserved or under-resourced area. But I think another reality I had to kind of come to terms with is just my family's financial situation and, and having to kind of support family back home. And so kind of a lot of factors to, to weigh and juggle as a, as a first-generation student. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in your third year of medical school, you said, right? Yeah. And I feel like so frequently people go into medicine without having that exposure that you've had to global, like really just anything. And you have the international relations background and everything. Do you feel like there are others, not necessarily like, yes, in your program, but maybe other people that you've met that are in medical school in general or that have that same type of background? Because I feel like that's such a niche thing, right? It's not the common path or like the common reasoning that a lot of people have to go into medicine from what I've seen, at least. Do you mean specifically kind of like the, the global health yeah, like justice you're, perspective? Yeah, because you're coming into it being like, this is how I feel like I can make the biggest impact on a global level. And that's the type of impact you wanted to make is through medicine, where I feel like a lot of other people are thinking a little bit smaller. So do you feel like you have met other people or that you're in a place where you see that that's something that comes through and how other people act or the way that they're treating their coursework and stuff like that? Because I feel like from my personal experience, when I was doing PT, that I did not have like anything like that. Um, there were like a couple of professors that did more of a like post-disaster relief type of work, but then everyone else was very like US-centric and they weren't really thinking on a global scale of how to work with quality of life or with medicine? That's a great question. I think that brings up a lot of like, I guess, factors that go into choosing yeah. to work in global health um, from medicine. So the first thing I would say is that um, I have actually had the privilege of meeting some awesome people here at Harvard who do think like that. You know, a, a classmate of mine who came in really interested in like global surgery and wanting to build kind of a coalition of students who, who had similar interests around that, but maybe didn't have the support or the infrastructure to develop those interests. And she created this awesome like global surgery student association across like medical schools in, in the country. But it's, it's really a mix. And, and I would say probably there's a larger number of students that are thinking more local or more, um, I guess, traditional medical careers in terms of kind of working at an academic medical institution and focusing more on clinical work and advancing research, which I think has its value. But something I've always struggled with in the field of medicine and in research and like medical knowledge is that there's so much money, there's so many resources in like advancing technology and the things we know about medicine. And I feel like a lot of the times we fall short in terms of distributing and applying that knowledge to the communities that need it most. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that just motivates me more to be someone in that realm, especially at a place like Harvard, where, you know, it's, it's known as the top kind of research institution in the world. There's a heavy focus on that. But more and more, you're seeing people shift gears to think about kind of implementation of that knowledge. Like, so we have it now. So, so how do we take this and apply it in a way that provides a benefit to populations? And then the other thing you kind of made me think about with with your question was that, you know, all of the personal factors that go into deciding like global health or not, one of them being most people still think about global health work and think international global health work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Diana, I appreciated in one of your episodes, you kind of talked about global health as just public health, but everywhere. 
Yeah. Which I think is just, yeah. you know, such a powerful idea. And I honestly, myself, don't think I had grown to a level of thinking about it that way until kind of in recent years. And I, I also fell into the trap of thinking that global health work had to be kind of like in formerly colonized countries. And I say that intentionally. I saw a meme recently where it was like, you know, instead of calling them underdeveloped countries, we should call them formerly colonized countries because the only reason they're in that mm. position is because of colonial and imperialist endeavors of Great Britain and so on and so forth. Yeah, so people tend to think of global health as international health and international work, and they think, oh, well, gee, like, I want to have a family, I want to have kids, how am I going to do all this traveling? And I think that can really be a big barrier for, for people in terms of this the personal sacrifice that can go into that. Yeah, sure. So how do you, because I think it's interesting, I, um, the more I do public health work, and I talk to other people who haven't done public health, but they do medicine. And it's interesting because we're both tackling this issue of health, but the perspectives are very different. Um, valid in their own way, right? Because clinical work has a, a very distinct world from the world of public health. And so for you, I feel like you have your feet in both. And I, this is how I see, I see clinical work as like you, you're very at the individual and, you know, even at the community level, you have, you're growing those relationships, you're talking to patients, tackling those very tangible issues. And then public health is we're kind of zoned out, like we're, we move a step further back and we're looking at the system and we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we, you know, we talk about upstream, right? Like, okay, can we get to the root of this issue? And that's what we do. We do prevention work. So then for you, as I love what you said, you know, you're trying to leverage this very powerful position as a physician, but also kind of come it from that more systematic perspective. And how do you carry those two things? And how do you see yourself, I don't know, five, 10 years from now doing that kind of work with both worlds? That's an awesome question. That reminds me of a story that someone told us one time. I can't remember who. It was like this, the, the problem of the, of the river. I don't know if you've heard this, where you're like near a river and you see all these people drowning and floating by and you have one approach where you can like try to save as many people as you can by snagging them out of the river and bringing them to safety and then there's mm -hmm. there's the the approach where you think well who's throwing these people in the river <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and that just reminded me of that so i agree that like i think traditionally probably that's been the separation of clinical medicine and public health kind of the individual yeah. versus the system level approach and i think these days with kind of the increasing amount of tools and technology that we have as individuals that that spectrum is widening a little bit with some crossover yeah. um, at least from my experience and i think they're so important it's so important to approach it from both angles because you want to provide the needs of a community but you also want to do it in a sustainable way and build capacity almost in a way like with the goal of you as an if you're especially if you're an outsider in a way that has a goal of putting yourself out of a job like building capacity so that um, that community can then hold itself up in the way that it envisions mm -hmm. and so myself five to ten years I mean that's the big question right I'm actually taking a year off between my third and my fourth year and I'll be doing some some research with an organization called Partners in Health. Um, they have an affiliate in Chiapas, Mexico called Compañeros en Salud. And a lot of that is still in the works, so I really won't get into the details of that. But I, I'm really hoping and intentionally taking this time for myself to reflect on exactly that question because things like specialty choice and what part of the country I end up in, what institution, rural or urban, I think will really change my trajectory and I think right now I'm kind of between deciding if I want to be providing more individual-based clinical care or 
somewhere in between where I'm like working in medical education to build some capacity, but also really close to patients. And then the other end of the spectrum being kind of policy level systems change with like the World Health Organization or other organizations kind of working at a systems level. So I think I still have a lot of that to figure out for myself. Definitely on my mind yeah. I mean, these days. Also a lot of time you could do all of those things. True. <laughs> all the things. You do not need to limit yourself. Do it all. Yeah. Maybe not all yeah. at once. And I, think <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's a process too. Like I think your time in Chiapas, you'll definitely have some reflections and some things that you come back with that you want to apply but as you continue on in your career, things will continue to grow and change. And uh, depending on the season of where you're at, you know, maybe your efforts one in one season will be towards policy and in another season, it'll be more focused on clinical work. But yeah, I think it's great that you're you're kind of doing both of those things, doing that clinical work and doing that more systems level um, work, because that's pr- pretty powerful. And I keep going back to when you said that you're, tr- you're you really want to leverage that position as a physician mm-hmm. to do that work. Because I mean, it's true, physicians do have a lot of power. And people more or less trust physicians. And I think the reason that some people don't like health too is because of bad experiences with physicians. So yeah, I think I'm excited to see where you where you'll be in the next ten years because I'm sure you're gonna do some really cool stuff. Same to you both. We could like team up and just take over the world, change it from inside out. <laughs> I mean, the world could use it right now with all of the right. everything and politics. It's a lot. Yeah, a lot's going on these days. It is a lot. But anyway, speaking of the power that physicians have in particular, how do you feel about you're going to be going to go do this work with PIH? And we don't talk about that in specifically, but any type of work that any physician or medical student does where they're going to another country, what? how do you feel about like the ethics that goes behind that? Like what you're doing, you're going into those places and you as a physician or almost a physician are coming into a place where you have a lot more power than the people that you're working with? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question and something that we actually talk about um, as part of our curriculum. We have two courses that are both titled Essentials, and um, part of this course integrates like social medicine and ethics, and we actually had this course on um, ethics and global health that challenged us to really think about that because I think we as medical students who typically will do a research project, a decent number in the U.S. that will do global international work with that research, you know, there's a potential to cause harm with that. And so we did this awesome um, kind of series of modules on a website called ethicsandglobalhealth.org, which is, I think, accessible by anyone. And it talks about some important principles to consider when doing international work with, um, and really with any community that um, you might hold power over either here in the U.S. or abroad. And so one of the classic things people talk about is not exceeding your level of training because you know there might be a much higher need in a low resource area that you're in and it might you know present an opportunity for you to do a procedure or some form of medical care that you wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to do back home and I think the general principle that's accepted is you know if you wouldn't do it or if you wouldn't be allowed to do it back home then don't do it on people elsewhere because then it kind of becomes unethical. And there's a lot of gray area in there, but like obviously if you're like a third year med student and you get offered to like cut someone's gallbladder out, you are not trained to do that. (laughs) Stay away from the gallbladders. (laughs) So I think that's like kind of one of the big ones. Another big is this idea of clinical equipoise. Basically the idea is that 
When you have clinical equipoise with a research question, it means there's no conclusive evidence that like one treatment is better than another. Um, and that provides the justification for splitting two groups into like the group that gets a treatment and the group that doesn't and kind of randomizing between those two. And the idea is that if you didn't have clinical equipoise, so say, you know, we know that there's certain cancer treatments that lengthen your, your lifespan by a year or two years. If you became the person that was in the control arm that didn't get that medication, like that'd be kind of unjust. You'd be like, no, I want to be in the treatment yeah. arm. And so you see this in like research trials with like the Ebola vaccine, where um, mm -hmm. once you start getting evidence that the vaccine can save someone's life or that there's certain supportive measures that we can do to save someone's life, it kind of becomes unethical to deny that to people for the sake of testing the research question. And it's very, it's very slippery slope and kind of gray area. Some people argue that like to have a truly rigorous study and to really know for sure that you have to kind of push that a bit, yeah. mm -hmm. but there's a lot of risk there to do harm and to limit access to life-saving treatment from people that deserve it. Where do you stand, you think? On that issue specifically with the vaccine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, with Partners in Health, which was founded by a guy named Paul Farmer, he's, right. he's a firm believer of providing the highest quality of care that we can, regardless of like, you know, the setting and the resources. And, and that really vibes with me in terms of, you know, taking a justice perspective and approach to something. Sometimes, you know, say whatever pharmaceutical company that's manufacturing this vaccine is charging like thousands of dollars, which is the case with a lot of like treatments and medications. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes we look at it from a resource perspective, resource allocation, and say, well, if we only have X number of dollars, why don't we instead spend our money on like another intervention such as, you know, like mosquito nets or sanitizing water because the net benefit of that would be greater. But then, I don't know, it's almost like settling for an inferior intervention. And I, I have trouble with that, but I think I lean more towards treating humans equally and thinking about the highest level of care that we can provide and aiming for that as our standard and, and not being satisfied until we're meeting that. Sure, we'll run into barriers and like resources is a very real thing. Money doesn't grow on trees, but our goal needs to be true equity in care provision. Yeah. yeah. Um, we actually talked about this in one of my ethics classes. And I think I want to say almost everyone voted like, oh, if that became the case, we would just give the whatever vaccine the medicine to everybody because at what point is it like you have to be ethical about it it's not fair if you know it's going to heal the person or prolong life to withhold it is essentially i mean without having a better term at hand killing them so yeah 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 also resources that's totally something that i feel like frequently people forget about unfortunately exactly. And so was it was it like most of your class or like the entire class? Um, well, I, like... I'm a solid like middle seat person. And so I'm going to assume that it's all of the class. And like some people just were not paying attention. Oh, nice. <laughs> right. Because I know like the people ahead of me usually pay attention because I'm in that. I don't know how else to describe it. I'm making a lot totally. of hand motions. I'm sorry. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think I think about that a lot, actually, because I think the reality of how think like our politics are formed and how resources are distributed, it's very a utilitarian model, right? And like how we distribute resources is based on, in my perspective, a lot of neoliberal economics. Like, sure, this will benefit everyone, but then they think about cost and they, you know, do all these calculations and stuff. And they're like, OK, we're going to just like target this population and then like leave everyone else out of it. And we'll do 
you know, some other intervention that's lower cost for this other population. And it's like, I don't know, I think I struggle with that a lot, especially like as a global health researcher, because the more you have these conversations, you realize there's no really right answer. You, there, there are certain things that you you vibe with, right? And you have values and you're like, yeah, you should definitely just give the vaccine to everyone if you know it's going to work. Like, wh- why would you withhold that? But then like you, let's say I was thrown into a situation where I'm not given that kind of liberty and you have to really operate under the system that's in place because I can't just overturn, be like, screw you, I'm just going to give vaccines to everyone. And I think that's hard. It's just how do you, uh, like, I don't know how you would navigate situations like that where... Um, there's only so much you can do as one person. Because I think that's another thing is like, if you're doing global health work, you you do also have to respect the community's political system in place or whatever like system that they function under. And if that system doesn't allow you to, you know, enact on your personal beliefs about how you should approach population health, but you know, but you, you believe that it will be the maximum benefit it's so conflicting. I just don't know what to do about it. <laughs> no, totally. It's so tough. And like with the vaccine, I mean, I totally, you know, when we talked about these cases in class, it's like a very valid point that you do want to have the research go on to an extent of time that, that you do have enough evidence to know that it's it's working. Right. Because, you know, you'll, you'll start to get results back and you see that, you know, the vaccine kept like 20 people from dying within like 24 to 48 hours but like that's a really small number so like could it be due to chance and so we have like all these complicated statistical models to calculate our p-value uh, which you know I, I learned about in med school <laughs> the, the amazing p-value which tells us you know how likely it is that it's due to chance versus actually due to the intervention so there's there's totally like validity in that I think for me it's more so challenging like the premises and the notions that we have under which like our, our assumptions and our logic operates and so the logic that we have for you know once once we establish that the vaccine works and now we're thinking about resources it becomes like a, a numbers thing or, or money and allocation and then just thinking systems level you know how much of our government budget is dedicated to and I know this is a controversial thing I'm just gonna come out there and say it but like <laughs> how much money do we have for the military versus healthcare in this country and, and globally and so the premise we operate under is like we have this limited number that's generated from this budget for international kind of aid and interventions and we'll ask ourselves like well here's the number we have and how can we make this number stretch further when the real question should be well why is this number so small you know yeah um mm-hmm. or how can we like what are the systems and structures in place that are keeping us from having enough resources to get everyone that vaccine or why is pick your pick your pharmaceutical company and insert here charging so much for this vaccine you know um and so kind of a combination of 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 those like kind of individual or local and systems level thinking to really shake up the system because it's there's just so much going on on every level yeah and it's totally overwhelming but i'm reassured to kind of be having these conversations in class and to talk about other people that are like yeah you know the amount of money they're charging for insulin right now is messed up Let's do something about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that is refreshing. It's nice when you have people that agree with you on that kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's, it's also like we all have to remember like, yes, while we have people that are agreeing and talking about it, that doesn't necessarily represent the majority because as we've seen in election True. after election, I mean, okay, everywhere we're seeing is going on the same trend. Right. Like so many people are removing access to different things. And like you were saying before, even if you weren't necessarily trying to talk about specifically the U.S. and the spending on the military and everything, the fact is that like we spend less on public health, we spend less on international aid now. And it's like quite obvious. It's not even like 
you don't, it's not a controversy or anything. It's literally been done and it's been in the news, right? Yeah. It's, it's not there. So, yeah. um, I think what's interesting is, so I went to a dissertation defense last week or earlier this week and one of the audience members, she said something really interesting that I've been thinking about. And she was saying, you know, in public health work and even in medicine, we're always taught to be impartial about everything, right? And it's always do no harm, you know, just try to provide health for everyone, regardless of who they are, where they come from, all that stuff. But then she said something that really struck with me. And she's like, but structural violence begets individual level violence. And so as public health practitioners, or even medical practitioners, is it really possible to be impartial to politics because everything is political and so she's like especially as public health practitioners if we know that and we continue to acknowledge in classes that yeah systems level thinking and we understand that it's it's not just individual level there's structural things that are going on that's affecting population health then don't we have to take a political stance on some things and get involved in politics and that was the big question that she put out and she's like it's not reflected in coursework where necessarily we're not really taught how to become political agents um, or advocates or do advocacy work. Like we're we're not really taught that. We're taught to talk about it and then talk about how to be a researcher, how to be a practitioner, but we're not taught necessarily how to be an advocate. And I've just been thinking about that. And I was like, you know, that is so true and so insightful because I could talk about all the world's issues that make me angry for days. <laughs> But then when we start talking about, okay, how can we be an advocate? I mean, that's the real challenge, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where the intersection of how public health really brings together so many different professions comes into play. Just because like mm-hmm. the nonprofit I work with, we have EDDs, MDs, PhDs, JDs, like we have everyone on staff, right? We can't do a whole lot because we have yeah. asylum seekers. We have, that's the population we work with in the US. In other countries, we have like survivors of violence, um, people that are HIV AIDS things, um, single mothers, just like all of those different types of population, vulnerable population specifically. And without having the combination of all of the different perspectives, you wouldn't really be able to do anything. Like it has to be collaborative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We have to kind of support ourselves in that endeavor as well, because often often it's almost in the institution's best interest to kind of keep us apolitical for a lot of reasons. And, and often because the quote unquote right thing to do or the just thing to do might come at a cost for, for an institution such as, you mm-hmm. know, something like single payer health care. But yeah, it's tough. It's tough because then you think about examples like in, in the Syrian civil war where traditionally like Red Cross volunteers or, or medical professionals are supposed to be truly impartial for the purpose of being able to provide care in any situation without being targeted. Mm-hmm. And so I know that, you know, we get talked too about the importance of being impartial impartial for that reason so that medicine remains kind of an independent profession. But I, I kind mm-hmm. of agree that, you know, if the focus of of medicine and the focus of our job as physicians is to improve and increase the health of our patients, there are explicitly political barriers in our way of being able to do that, such as access to health care, the way we pay for health care, everything that's going on with access to abortion care and reproductive health for women right now. It's pretty much impossible to stay political when I've got a patient in front of me who needs an abortion because, I mean, for, for any reason, 
including if she just simply is not ready to be a mother. And, and we have a group of 25 white male politicians telling me as a physician that I can't do that. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is really difficult. And there's kind of like competing interests there in terms of keeping the profession independent versus doing what's best for the patient. And I don't know that I have a right answer yeah. to that, but um, yeah. kind of going back to my view of, of leveraging the privilege and the power that comes with being in the position that I will be as a physician is to, to side with the communities and the individuals that are impacted as opposed to siding with the system. But I think it's kind sure. of a case-by-case basis kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like even taking something so much more simple, like when I was doing school for PT, I worked with a lot of students for advocacy, which is how I ultimately ended up in public health. But we worked for two years, like not not even two years in a row, two like election cycles in a row and multiple years to try to even get increased access without using insurance to physical therapy, like which is already such like a, it's a simple thing. It's not even something that's a medical procedure or anything. It's literally like, hey, come in and we'll help you figure out how to heal your body with your body, Right. And it already took like multiple times, multiple lobbying to different people and like a combination of PTs at various like levels of education and lawyers to just get it to increase all of seven days like to a month. Yeah. So like even something that's like so simple and seems so like logical, all these other access, like it takes so long to get increased access, but it's so fast for them to take it away, which I think is like shocking right so it's it's just going to be such a long process to have to do it and i'm glad that like there are people like you that will be able to help pioneer that and push that through (laughs) in the future but it sucks that we have to go through that yeah yeah it really does it really does Um, i'm a huge fan of physical Um, therapy i i agree we should have better access to pt yeah but also better access to everything (laughs) yeah true that (laughs) that that. is true everything um daniel so you Correct me if I'm wrong. You identify as Latinx. Okay. So if you don't mind, I would like to ask a little more about that in relation to the field that you're Mm -hmm. in. Um, So I know you mentioned earlier on that, you know, your identity is very important in terms of like the communities that you wanted to help and then just kind of shaping your thoughts and your values as you grew up, you know, 20 something years. So what does it look like for you as a Latinx um, physician or medical student currently? Because in terms of the demographics of doctors out there, it is still largely white. And a lot of people go into it very privileged, (laughs) you know, like their families are doctors. So they kind of go into the field following, you know, their parents' footsteps. So I know for you as a first generation, um, it must be a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I would definitely say that. I think my identity has really impacted the kind of experience I've had in life and in medical school. You know, Harvard is a is a top tier institution, people probably would literally kill to come here. And I try to stay, Mm -hmm. you know, I try to always remind myself of of just literally the privilege that I have of of being here, but especially given my identity and and traditionally how a lot of people from my community or of my background were not in these spaces. And I think it's definitely presented challenges, you know, I think financially, I've definitely had different challenges during medical school in terms of supporting my family back home and kind of the added stressors that places Mm -hmm. on top of kind of studying for exams and and doing work. Um, One that really stands out that I think um, a lot of minority students can probably identify with is is what's kind of known as the minority tax. Mm -hmm. And it can be interpreted many different ways, but I think of it in the social justice space that we have here at school where 
there's a lot of kind of like advocacy and activism and work being done to like to do exactly these things that we're talking about to kind of change the system both within the medical school as an institution within our hospitals and often that work falls on the shoulders of minority students who are the ones who are sometimes most affected by it but now have the added workload of doing that on top of their studies and i've talked about this with classmates who also identify as latinx or minority or, or people of color and we kind of would like vent with one another over the frustration of of you know i just just thinking about how nice it would be to just not have to worry about these things um Mm -hmm. to be able to just study for class and go to the gym and and fall asleep nice sound and and count the sheep and everything's all happy (laughs) but but really in our world it's not and and when you hear on the news that the trump administration is enacting immigration policy that literally affects your family members um, and community members and people that you care a lot about, it creates a level of stress that you just, um, you can't ignore, you know, Um, you don't have the privilege of not thinking about that because it so directly impacts you. So there's definitely been, I mean, I was a first year in medical school when, when the election happened and that was like a rough time to, I mean, a lot of, a lot of my classmates that were affected by the policies that were to come, we could not we could not focus, you know, uh, as I'm sure a lot of the people in the country felt. And on top of that, I think just in general, on a day-to-day basis in class or in the hospital, like um, being able to, to relate to others and, and find mentors who have similar backgrounds as you, or, you know, even with things like going into global health and thinking about doing international global health work, it's like that much harder to find a minority mentor who comes from an, from a low-income background that can that can yeah. understand the factors that like I have to take into consideration, such as supporting my mom with my income as a physician and supporting other family members, which some of some others yeah. don't have to think about. And so definitely creates challenges, but I also remind myself of the strengths that it has given me in terms of being resilient and yeah. and the voice, though I don't think any person should ever have to speak for an entire group of people, the opportunities that it's provided me and other minorities to to be a voice for a voice that has not traditionally been in that space. And to be the one in class Mm -hmm. that raises their hand and says, like, uh, what did you mean by that? You know, (laughs) (laughs) no, I I, I'm going to ask this and it may or may not apply to you. um, But I wonder if you've ever had an experience where people insinuated that you got into Harvard Medical School because you're Latinx, because that's very you know what I mean, right? Because not whether you're Latinx or whether you're black or I think Asians are a different kind of thing because there's a lot to unpack there yeah. but like people will be like they insinuate that you got in not because of your actual talents and that you're you worked hard and you're brilliant and they're like oh you're a minority of course you got into this school like do you think you've ever kind of received that kind of attitude or I don't know in your experience you know I've been fortunate to not experience that mm-hmm. I've definitely heard of classmates who have classmates who identify as black mm-hmm. or african-american and it's unfortunate. There's been a lot going on, you know, in the media regarding affirmative action with uh, the trial against Harvard. A lot of thoughts yeah. that have been shared regarding that. And then you definitely kind of alluded to uh, a controversial issue about Asian Americans and Asians in medicine that are not considered underrepresented within medicine. Uh, because like proportionally right. speaking to the percentage of Asian Americans in the population at large versus those that are in medicine, the number of medicines actually a bit higher. And so it creates this like mm-hmm. dynamic where in society at large, Asian Americans are minorities and they do experience discrimination and suffer from structural violence. 
And then even yeah. within, I mean, Asian is such a pan label, right? Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about when you say Asian? Like how many countries and like ethnicities and like how much diversity just goes into that label. Um, and I think the admissions office somewhat maybe makes up for that by also considering like other things like socioeconomic status and, um, you know, sexuality, gender identity. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've, I've never, I've been fortunate to not experience that myself, but it's, it's a very real thing. And, and it's a, it's a hot topic, the yeah. issue of affirmative action. I think what I would say myself, so, I mean, I, I never pictured myself at a school like this. I honestly, I was almost aversive to it because I thought of like Harvard being this like ivory tower snobby place, which sometimes it kind of is. <laughs> um, but I was so like pleasantly surprised when I came here for second look, which is after you get admitted, they really roll out the red carpet and kind of try to talk you into it. Mm-hmm. And I met these awesome students um, who like were really into building community and, and social justice. Um, and the school was more diverse than I thought it would. I'd, I'd say yeah. like roughly it's like one third underrepresented minority, one third white and maybe one third Asian. Okay. Um, and a lot of medical schools aren't even close to those numbers. And I know that numbers is only one yeah. component of diversity, but I think it definitely matters and it's felt by me as a community that has others that have similar backgrounds as me. And it's definitely made me feel more at home and more welcome. And I've had an awesome time here in, in addition to those challenges. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. good. I'm really happy for you. That matters yeah, a lot. Thank you. Well, before I ask my next question, Daniel, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about or address? I guess just kind of Continuing off of that last question, I've thought about that myself. You know, I think you guys have mentioned imposter syndrome uh, in other episodes, and it's so real. It's so real. I think probably in any field, we talk about it a lot in medicine and in medical school because it can just be so difficult sometimes to not like compare yourself to others and to not think to yourself, like, am I good enough? Do I belong here? And I've definitely had thoughts to myself of thinking about whether I'm cut out for this. Um, I've definitely struggled a lot in medical school, and um, I always come back to giving myself credit for the strengths that I do have. And though I may not have the highest like MCAT or Step 1 score, though I may not know the pathophysiology of every single disease to the T, I think there are a lot of strengths that I bring to the table that are based on my background. You know, I have a, a passion for, for doing what I want to do, and that in itself is, is unique, and it's such a strength. And I think we have to remind ourselves of that in situations of self-doubt, because it's equally important to have yeah. people like that in medicine, especially people that represent diverse backgrounds, and that will go into the kind of work that is needed, such as working with underserved communities or working in areas of extreme poverty, because I think it's no secret that the people who score the highest on the MCAT aren't always the ones that want to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. So it's important to balance it out. <laughs> they want to go into dermatology. That's they like just want the best skin ever. But I already <laughs> have that, so I don't need to do that. <laughs> JK, I did do a charcoal mask last night with my sister, though, so I feel... Um, oh, there you go. <laughs> my self-care this weekend has been on point. Your skin looks Thank great. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was going to ask you, and you kind of touched on it, actually, so it's good that you... You mentioned it. Um, so given everything we've talked about, who you are, your path, your identity, if you could give words of advice to future people who are who want to be in your position, what are some things you would want to tell them? Oh, that's a great question. Free consult for all our listeners. I hope you're still with us, guys, because this is this is where it gets really good. You should you should drop in your Venmo. <laughs> Five dollars per word. Um, let's see. Well, first and foremost, 
you know, for people thinking that they want to be in my position and, you know, are either eyeing Harvard or being a medical student, I think it's so important to think about the why. And I remember, I think the best kind of advice that I got about how to approach life in general, but also just in thinking about my path here, I'm a huge believer of doing the things that you care about and are passionate about and things that like genuinely you enjoy because you know if you want to be happy the philosophy i guess i kind of have embodied over time is that happiness should be a journey and not a destination and i think for pre-meds we often get stuck in this tunnel uh with tunnel vision medical school and being a physician being the light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. and everything that it takes to get there being kind of the the dark desolate desperate (laughs) you have to do in between the organic chemistry class you have to pass and i really don't think it has to be that way and i think my my story and my path is kind of a testament to that because i i literally remember so Susanna and I, you know, we both were involved in student orgs on campus in college, and we're both kind of perfectly involved with the Center for Multicultural Excellence on our campus. And I had a work-study job there, and I loved it. I loved working in diversity and inclusion. I loved working with the Latino Student Alliance and, and talking about these issues. I was so curious and interested about, like, continuing to learn and grow and challenging my own notions that I had back then, because you know, none of us are perfect, and we should all continually self-reflect on how we can be better versions of ourselves. And there was an opportunity that presented itself in college to go work in a forensic genetics lab. And my job would have been to collect bodily fluid samples, like blood, and vomit, and urine. And I was mm. like, oh, that sounds so gross. <laughs> um, and I knew, like, it had been kind of hammered into my head that, like, basic science research plus good grades plus good test score equals medical school. And I was so troubled because I loved my job at, at CME, the Center for Multicultural Excellence. And I like remember making a decision to myself to do what I cared about and what I was passionate about. So I turned that position down. Luckily, I was still able to get some research, but it was more like within the area that I was passionate about, which is like social determinants of health mm-hmm. um, and did psych- developmental psych research and neuroscience research with first time moms looking at the relationships between poverty and stress and emotion regulation and like parenting. And I got to work with little babies. They're so cute. <laughs> and, and when I interviewed at medical schools, I remember it was just so awesome to, to hear responses I would get where they'd be like, Oh, you're, you're not a biology major. And their ears would just perk up. And they'd be like, tell me about international studies or tell me about this research you did with babies and like psychology research. Um, and that's not to say that there's not value in biology or, or the other kinds of basic science research. It's, it's a lot of the foundation of medicine. But if you're passionate about that, go for it and like and love it. And, and sure, there's things that you're going to have to do that you probably won't love 100%. But like, don't keep yourself from doing the things that you do care about because you think that you won't mm-hmm. fit into this box. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that's kind of my that's main thing. And the the only other thing I'd add is, um, you know, I mentioned that I never kind of saw myself here, both because I, I think I had a stereotype of what Harvard was like, but honestly, part of it was that I didn't really believe in myself. I didn't think I was I was kind of good enough. I didn't, I didn't see myself as Harvard material. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was actually the last application that I submitted And I had gotten kind of like um, a letter from the school saying that I kind of fell within like their range of test scores and that I should consider applying. And that opened my head to the, that opened my mind to the possibility. And I think in in thinking back to like 
me possibly not submitting that application because I didn't believe myself. It just blows my mind mm-hmm. that 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 was yeah. all it would have taken for like none of this to have happened. And so I think yeah. it just highlights the power of like believing in yourself because that's the first step for anything to kind of manifest. Um, and I know that not all of us have the privilege to be told, you know, that something is possible or to have someone that believes in us and uh, instills that sense of confidence. I guess I would, I would just empower people to believe in themselves and to think big. Even if you fail, even if you don't make it, that'll keep you from 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, wondering like, what if? Mm-hmm. And if you fail, like just get back up and keep pushing because I'm also a firm believer of, of hard work um, paying off, even though we live in an unequal world and it doesn't pay off the same for everybody. <laughs> All those caveats. No, I know. <laughs> Global caveats, hashtag. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think you... Answer my next question perfectly because I was going to say, Dana and I, we talk a lot about selling ourselves Mm. um, and how, especially as people of color, we struggle with that because we're always told that it not maybe not necessarily verbally, but just how we go through Mm -hmm. life. You know, we feel like we don't belong in a lot of spaces. And so like you even conceiving the idea of possibly going to Harvard, it's like, ooh, would I even belong there in my Harvard material, whatever that means, right? And even for me applying for a PhD was like, am I even PhD material? Um, And I think think that's such a steep learning curve to learn how to sell yourself, right? And I think it's one thing to like try and learn to believe in yourself, which is a constant struggle, but then creating that into actually selling yourself and saying like, pick me because I'm just as smart and just as brilliant, maybe even more brilliant because I have more perspectives that maybe these other candidates don't have. And really trying to sell that and have people buy into it. It's so hard because I think we're still stuck at like, do we even belong in doing that kind of and saying that kind of stuff? And then there's like, you know, to take it even further, the balance between like selling yourself based on like what you know the expectation is versus being the real version of yourself. Yeah. And so like classically you hear of like on like grad school application interviews or, or med school interviews, you know, you wear the suit and you try to be as formal as possible. And, and they tell you to kind of avoid certain topics, avoid like, I think certain forums will say like avoid wearing anything too flashy. And it's like, if you're a person that likes to wear flashy things is, you know, are you sacrificing your own identity for the sake of fitting this mold? And it's come up in like panels that I've been on for like underrepresented students on how to approach the interview. And it really becomes this balance of like, I think going back to leveraging power and privilege. Mm -hmm. For me, I was totally okay with speaking the language and approaching it in a way strategically to kind of highlight the experiences that I have had and the characteristics that I have that would also align enough with what the school's looking for to kind of get myself into that position to incite change, but not so much in a way that I was like completely selling out Um, or trying to paint myself as a person that I'm not because I also didn't want to end up at an institution that didn't support, you know, what I was all about. Like I definitely was going to put my experience at the Center for Multicultural Excellence on my resume. Mm -hmm. I was totally going to put the kind of research that I did and I was not going to try to hide that, was not going to try to paint myself as like a basic science researcher because then I might end up at a school that thinks I'm just going to do basic science and doesn't have any of that other stuff mm-hmm. to offer me, and I'd be miserable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like a combination of, of staying true to yourself, but yeah, kind of picking up some of those strategic skills on how to, it's kind of like public speaking, you know, like how to, how mm-hmm. to sell yourself <laughs> and 
and how to how to take all of the things about you, but like put it into a coherent application, and then to be able to verbally communicate to, to that to someone in a way that's convincing enough for them to advocate for you on the admissions committee. And so there's just so much that goes into getting you from point A to point B for for feeling confident yeah. and mm-hmm. ready for that. I'm sure, I couldn't do it justice within the amount of time that we have, but yeah. I think it all starts with like first believing that's possible. And then finding mentors. I mean, students that come to me all the time, I'm always like super happy to to help them out as much as I can. But finding those people like on your campus, in your life, that kind of model that and, and learning from them what it took for them to get to, to feeling that confident or feeling that comfortable and how they can help you also practice that. Mm, sure. Yeah. All great advice. And applicable to yeah. not just the academic world, but just really the world in general. So totally. Like, yeah. yeah. Look at you, give me a position and you're going to go and now you're just going to go around and do speeches oh, on man. motivation. The next Brene Brown. <laughs> there you Let go. it be known that my, my public speaking, my motivational speaking career started on Global Caveats. <laughs> oh, I think it started before that, that's for sure. Thank you. <laughs> and that's the episode. Thank you so much, Daniel, for talking with us. And if you're interested in reaching out to Daniel, you can find him on our Instagram and on our website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. A special thanks to Cordell Glass for producing our music. Thanks for listening.